We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. So you may have started noticing that there's some strange tall boys of beer in the bottled water section of your local stores. Well, it's not actually beer. It's mountain spring water from the Alps, and it's called Liquid Death. Why is this water called Liquid Death? Well, because it will brutally murder your thirst, and their infinitely recyclable tall boy cans are helping to bring death to plastic bottles. They'll also donate 10% of the profits from every can sold to help kill plastic pollution. See, what you may not know is that most plastic isn't actually recyclable anymore, and the plastic you throw in a recycling bin actually just gets sent to a landfill because it's not profitable to recycle. Aluminum is infinitely recyclable and actually profitable for recycling facilities. So go get Liquid Death at your local Woodman's, 7-Eleven, Roundies, or Hy-Vee, or find a Liquid Death retailer near you with our store locator tool at liquiddeath.com slash packaday, P-A-C-K-A-D-A-Y. That's liquiddeath.com slash packaday. Twenty minutes a day, three hundred sixty-five days a year. This is the Pack a Day podcast. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Pack a Day podcast. I'm your host, Andy Herman. You can follow me on Twitter at Andy Herman NFL. Appreciate you joining me today. Today we are going to be going through the full film review of Packers. Patriots had the opportunity, obviously, to do the watch, the rewatch, and watch every play on the All-22 offense and defense. And this game is not any less bizarre than it felt the first time around. We'll get there in just a moment. Before we do a couple news and notes, first of all, from a Giants standpoint, as we head into Packers-Giants this upcoming weekend, Kenny Galladay, who has been a complete and utter bust for the Giants, uh, likely is going to be out this week. So not sure if that's good or bad for the Packers. Uh, From a quarterback standpoint, uh, Tyrod Taylor is still in the concussion protocol while Daniel Jones is day-to-day. So if I had to guess, I would say that Daniel Jones probably plays this week, but there can always be setbacks and you never quite know for sure. Meanwhile, Tyrod Taylor with a concussion and having to travel uh, all the way to London, you never quite know there either. So that will still be a storyline worth monitoring this week. But as of right now, 
We don't really know too much more about it other than that Jones is day-to-day, Galladay unlikely to play, and Tyrod is in concussion protocol. So we'll monitor, monitor all of it, and we'll obviously keep you posted as the week goes along. From a Packers standpoint, I think the biggest takeaway from Matt LaFleur's press conference was about the offensive line, and more specifically, what they want to do at right tackle. And we'll get into, you know, Elton Jenkins and and some of his struggles and some of the things that, quite frankly, he did pretty darn well this week as well. Uh, But it... I think TJ Lang, uh, who on Twitter put it best that, you know, I think I'm paraphrasing here, but he basically said, you know, bless Elton for his, you know, ability to play all five positions and moving out to right tackle, but he's a guard is what basically TJ Lang said. And I think that's right. I think... I think there's a world in which Elton Jenkins can become a a serviceable right tackle. In fact, I think we saw some signs of that this week, which we'll go over. But I think at the end of the day, he's a guard. Whether that's a left guard or a right guard, I'm not sure it matters. And I think he could be a really good center too, but I think he's a guard. And I think Green Bay is going to have to make the ultimate determination of how do how do we want this offensive line to line up, not not just now, but at the end of the season and maybe going forward as well. And I think if you look at it from that point of view, you can make a strong argument. And and Bakhtiari is a huge piece of this, right? That's just such a a weird unknown. Had Bakhtiari had no long-term medical issue or injury history at this point, you probably just plug Bakhtiari at left tackle for the foreseeable future. You then probably figure out, you know, all right, do we want Elton at left guard, running at right guard, or running at left and Elton at right? You figure that out right now. You put Myers at center and you probably put in Yash at right tackle and just say, all right, we're we're gonna figure out how to play Yash at right tackle. We'll let him have that time and you know, we'll we'll you know help him a little bit as needed in the time being, but we think he can be a serviceable right tackle. And I think you figure that out, right? With Bakhtiari's issue, I think that clouded things, and it's you know that you know whether you have to move players back, it, all those things get put into question when you had the big injury issue. So, if I'm Green Bay, I'm I'm moving forward right now as Bakhtiari's the left tackle. I do think it's at worth it worth at least exploring Yash at right tackle, and then I don't know I I struggle if I want to move. Jenkins to left guard and then put make Runyon move to right guard. I kind of want to just set Runyon at left guard and not have to worry about it as much and and see if Jenkins can play right. But listen, if if Jenkins is your best bad long term at left guard and that's where he you think he's going to be best, you probably make that decision. And you can make an argument too that if you can get Bakhtiari and Jenkins back to their their themselves, you've got a dominant left side of the line. Myers is coming along, some ups and downs. Runyon should be fine at right guard. And then you've got a potential long-term right tackle in Yash as well. So I think that could make some sense, but they're going to have to make that decision. I think their best option is to try to make that decision for end of this year, even going into next year as to where they want, they want these players playing. So either way, very, very interesting that Matt LaFleur basically said, yeah, they're, they're considering this, that Yash could be at right tackle. And I think Elton's play at right tackle certainly has something to do with that, but we don't know what their ultimate offensive line is that they wanted it to be. I guarantee you that they didn't want to move Yash around until they felt comfortable with Bakhtiari at left tackle, like he was going to be able to play there week in and week out and not have to take plays off, right? 
I, I, I'm sure they don't want to move Yash over to right tackle if all of a sudden Yash is going to have to play four or five series at left tackle again this week. So I think they probably want to get Bakhtiari past that hurdle first where they're at least comfortable in thinking that he's just going to be left tackle, no sub needed through the course of the game, and he's going to be able to make it week after week. If they get to that point, Maybe at that point, they look at Yash at right tackle. Maybe that comes as soon as this week. We'll have to see. But it's very, very interesting nonetheless. And then long-term, you got to think of how potentially Zach Tom fits into this. So a lot of things to, to figure out. And in the meantime, they probably should be focused on what's the, the best unit both now and in the future. So we'll see what they decide. I think there's a good chance it just kind of stays status quo. But one week at a time, and we know... We know how much Matt LaFleur wants to get his best five guys in the offensive line. And you'd be hard pressed to have anyone at this point who's probably thinking, you know what, we think Royce is, is a lot better than than Yash. I just I don't think many people would probably see it that way at this point. So changes could be uh, in the making. I thought the other key takeaway from his presser on Monday was he was asked about, you know, some of the cover two shell. I, I forget exactly. I, I think he was just asked about the run defense and he talked about the cover two shell and keeping two safeties deep and how that makes it difficult for the quarterback and trying to read the defense and what Green Bay is going to do. But he basically flat out said, and, and in a way, not called out Joe Barry, but kind of, you know, made at least made light of the situation that, hey, yeah, we want to be in, in cover two shell or at least, you know, two high safeties more often than not. But there are times where depending on the situation and when you know the other team's running the football well, that you got to come out of it and you got to bring a guy down into the box. And, he, you know, he basically said, you know, they got to do a better job of that. And I think that to some extent was a loud and clear message to Joe Barry of like, hey, we got to take away what's working. And if they're running the football well, and they've got a Bailey Zappi at quarterback, we need to put that safety in the box and give ourselves a better chance to stop the run so that they can't just, you know, shove the ball down our throats. And I go back and I watch the game and we'll, we'll go through the tape here. I don't know that there's two things. There's some things where they got outnumbered and that's on Joe Barry. There's some things where, listen, if I were Joe Barry and I watched the last three weeks, I would have been like, yeah, we could probably bring a safety down. But I, I kind of think, you know, I kind of think Kenny Clark and, and Jerron Reed and Dean Lowry and Preston and Rashawn and Devondre and Quay got this. Like, I don't think I need to bring a guy down. I have faith in those guys. And I think it's okay to start that way. But when you're on, and maybe the first drive of the second half after being so good defensively in the first half, it catches you off guard a little bit. Okay. But that next drive, when they come back and score another touchdown like that, that's where you have to start making those adjustments a little bit quicker. And I think loud and clear, Matt LaFleur said, you know, they've got to bring that safety down when they need the extra guy. And I think that's probably going to be a very clear message for Joe Barry moving forward. So definitely some interesting takeaways. As far as the film review goes, and I said it at the onset, this is just a bizarre game to break down. I hate the three, the you know, number three quarterback games and the games that you're expected to win by 10 points, etc. You know, again, if you if you win by a lot, great, nobody cares because you were supposed to. If you win by a little, everyone's panicked a little bit. And if you lose, good lord, look look the heck out because it's going to be uh, panic city just about everywhere, right? So th these are difficult games, and I think if you, uh, I mentioned this uh, on a couple of the radio hits I did on Monday, as well as talking to to Aaron Nagler on on Let's Talk Football. I think if you ask 10 people about this game and what their takeaways were, I think you'd get 10 different things. I think if I watched it you know, five, six, seven more times, I would probably have five, six, seven more different takeaways uh, on this game. I do think 
that overall the the defense I don't think was as bad as I thought, but at the same token, they need more consistency defensively. And I think this is a, a mixture of finding their identity, figuring out who they want to be, and being a little bit more aggressive and playing a more physical brand of defensive football. I mentioned that I thought this was going to be a physical game. I thought Tampa sort of set the tone in the second half in the, the Buccaneers game uh, a week ago. And I thought New England would for sure take a page out of Tampa's playbook and, and punch Green Bay in the mouth and see how they responded. And, I, and Matt LaFleur mentioned it as well in his presser, saying like they need to be more physical, more violent you know, at the point of attack. And I don't think they always played that way. And I think that's that's the place where they need to get to. Is I think they... I think they're playing a little bit more sound football. I think they're playing, um, I think they're rallying to the football a little bit better, but it's got to be violent at the point of attack. Football is a violent game at the end of the day. I think we all know that. And the team that is going to punch you harder is more often than not going to win. And New England punched Green Bay harder. And I think Green Bay was not lucky, but they were just clearly the more talented team. And I think they got away with talent in this one and not maybe effort, violence, intensity, the things that they really needed if they wanted to win by double digits and make this a clear and easy game. So I think that's something that Green Bay's defense has to clean up. I think that overall, as I go through these, this offense and this defense through you know four games so far, there are very few players that are, are playing at a very high level. I think Kenny Clark and Rashawn Gary clearly on the defensive side of the ball. On offense, they're, you know, Aaron Jones, AJ Dillon are playing pretty well, but there's nobody that's like a standout. Like if I were a, a Pro Bowl or an All Pro voter at this point, there's no tight ends, there's no offensive linemen, there's no wide receiver, you know, maybe in Aaron Jones, but, you know, he's probably the closest, but that he had a huge fumble in week three that was extremely costly. Rodgers has not played to that level yet. Defensively, Kenny Clark, absolutely. Rashawn Gary, absolutely. Campbell hasn't been the same. Jair, even when he was in, hasn't been you know quite the same yet. Stokes and Douglas have had some ups and downs. Amos uh, had a really nice start to this game before he went out injured, but it struggled, especially in that Viking game. Like I don't put anyone in that that tier or category outside of Clark and, and Gary right now. Those are the only two offense and defense. The good news is they're three and one, and a lot of their really talented, super talented players aren't even playing at a high level yet. They haven't even won the turnover battle with any consistency yet. But all of a sudden, that you know, Rogers starts playing the way he can. Jenkins and Bakhtiari do. You know, I think these wide receivers are going to continue to grow. You know, defensively, I think Devondre Campbell, Razul Douglas, Jair Alexander, Eric Stokes, Adrian Amos. Uh, there's multiple guys. I think all of those I just named have the ability, Preston Smith, all of them have the ability to play a tier or two higher than what they're playing right now. And I think that's the biggest thing. I, I was really intrigued going into this game as I watched the All-22, specifically on defense. All right, did, did the players play well and the scheme just did them no favors? Or you know, was the scheme good and the players didn't execute? And there were times where it was just you know, either or, right? There were times where the players were put in an opportunity to succeed and they didn't. And I think some of the, you know, bottom tier players on this, you know, on the roster did not live up to, you know, what they needed to be in this game. And, I, and guys like, and I don't even, bottom tier sounds harsh, but like you're, you're, the depth did not live up to the, the expectations in this game. I think Kingsley and Igbari really struggled. I think, um, 
there, there are a couple other players, uh, you know, defensive line, TJ Slayton was another one who really struggled in this game. Like just some of the depth that comes in, like those guys have to hold up better at the point of attack. I also thought there were times where Green Bay got a little too depth heavy. Like all of a sudden it would be like Devontae Wyatt, TJ Slayton, and Jonathan Garvin in the game at the same time. And yeah, Preston Smith was in, but like all the, you've got Jerron Reed, who was having a really nice game, Kenny Clark and Rashawn Gary out at the same time, and Dean Lowry, like those four guys out at the same time, that's going to be a recipe for disaster. So I think they need to work on their rotations. They need to work on their intensity. I think their depth guys need to step up a little bit. And I think all of those things are within the realm of possibility. But this was a game where you saw a first half of offense that was beyond abysmal and a second half offense that looked very competent against a good Patriots defense. You put up 440 plus yards and had the opportunity for a lot of point production and just came up a little bit shy. The pick six, the drop by Dobbs certainly affected that quite a bit. And, you know, the fumble by Dobbs, et cetera, your own mistakes are what kind of cost you. And that that's always the most disappointing aspect. Defense, the exact opposite, right? That first half defensively was phenomenal. Like really, really good defense. One drive, 50 yards, field goal, tip your cap. Who cares? You're on pace for a six point game defensively at that point. And then you have the two touchdown drives, which were maddening because you knew they were going to run the ball. You couldn't stop it, which is super frustrating. And then you get to the last three drives and the defense mans up again, including coming up super clutch in a situation where they had to come up super clutch. So a bizarre game, very 2019 reminiscent, right? Like 2019 was just chock full of games that maybe you know they didn't deserve to win at times, but they came away with a bunch of wins. This is kind of in that category. Like, I don't think they've played great football through four games. They played a bad Bears team. They got a fairly easy win. They played a decent Minnesota team. They got their butts kicked in in the first week, which is seemingly their MO lately. You know, they they played a tough Tampa team on the road. They played a really strong first half and a really bad second half, specifically on offense. And they got away with a win against a team that didn't have any wide receivers. And then they really struggled against New England. New England probably outplayed them and Green Bay got by with talent. I don't mind that through four games. Overall, three and one, you take it and you advance and you move on and you try to get better as the season goes along. I've said all off season and all season, I don't care how they play in the regular season. This is going to be a playoff team. I think we know that all the way around. This is going to be a team that is somewhere in the top seven in the NFC. There's no question about it. And I just want to see them get better as the season goes along. I continue to see flashes of things I'm excited about, but flashes won't get it done in the playoffs. They still have, what, 13 weeks to, to get their 13 games, 14 weeks to figure that all out. Maybe 15 if they can get a bye. Who knows? But they've got a lot of time to figure it out. And I do think they're trending in the right direction overall, but they've, they've got to find a little bit more identity on offense. Their star players have to play better and they need to play a more intense physical brand of football. I think we learned a lot of that from this game against the Patriots. All right. Top offensive players this week. Number one on my list was Alan Lazard. It's hyperbolic more often than not to say Green Bay doesn't win without X player. Like it's usually not the case. Probably not, maybe not the case with Alan Lazard, but if, if not, it's darn close. It is darn close. He was really, really good in this game from coming up with key catches in overtime on the third play of the second half to get the offense back going, you know, getting a couple explosive plays down the field, you know, getting getting some key blocks on plays. Like 
there's just very few wide receivers that can do what Alan Lazard can do as both a you know receiver and also as a blocker. And he had a couple of really nice blocks in this game. I do think there are times where Lazard can be a little bit overrated as a blocker because there'll be plays where he's like digging a guy out or like just setting a ridiculous block that a wide receiver shouldn't make. And then there's other plays where he just kind of goes like a tenth of the speed and isn't really doing much. And I'd like to see that get cleaned up a little bit, but man, when he wants to, he is a very, very good blocking wide receiver. And he also came up huge with some, some monster catches in this game. And it really felt like that catch in overtime too was really the precursor to going down and, and scoring and ultimately winning the game. So Lazard showed up in clutch situations. He showed up when they needed him the most. He showed up as a receiver. He showed up as a blocker. This was a really big game for Alan Lazard, plus 1.0 on the grade for the day. I don't know about everyone listening, but after a long day of work, I just need to come home to a nice, refreshing tall boy to ease my stress. I actually just had three or four last night, if I'm being honest. No, not those tall boys. A refreshing tall can of liquid death was exactly what I needed. If you've noticed a new tall boy can in the water section that looks like a beer or an energy drink, it's actually liquid death, a mountain spring water from the Alps that comes in still, sparkling, or in three different flavors. Try the lime, trust me. Why is the water called liquid death, you ask? Well, because it will brutally murder your thirst and their infinitely recyclable tall boy cans are helping to bring death to plastic bottles. They also donate 10% of the profits from every can sold to help kill plastic pollution. There's just something special about grabbing an ice cold can of liquid death, hearing the pop when you open it, and quenching your thirst with the best tasting still or sparkling water on the market. I honestly could not go back to bottles even if I wanted to. As I mentioned, I can't recommend the Sparkling Lime Liquid Death enough. It has the perfect lime flavor to go with a crisp, refreshing finish. It's also the best water to mess with just about everyone you know, as they probably think you're chugging a beer in your car or a work meeting at about 9am. Seriously guys, check this product out. I've been absolutely loving it and I know you will too. Go get Liquid Death at your local Woodman's, 7-Eleven, Roundies, or Hy-Vee, or find a Liquid Death retailer near you with their store locator tool at liquiddeath.com slash packaday. That's liquiddeath.com slash packaday. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Number two on my list was AJ Dillon plus 0.45. Surprising, I think a little bit that 
you know, if you would have told me that Dylan graded out better than Jones in this game, I would have been like, ah, that doesn't sound right. And like, there's always that point after I'm like, are we sure? And then I, you know, of course I go back and look at everything again, but I, I like Dylan just basically not making mistakes. I thought his vision was some of the best vision that we've seen from AJ Dylan, honestly, in his career. I thought he made a couple really nice cutbacks in this game that set him up from yardage. There were a couple of plays where he consistently fell forward and just not many negatives at all. And the big thing with Aaron Jones in this one, he had a, a pass block where uh, he was one-on-one with the safety. I think it was Adrian Phillips, but feel free to correct me if I'm wrong. But he had a pass protection play and he just got blown up on the play. And unfortunately, I think it was Lazard came wide open down the field and Rodgers was looking that way. And he it would have been a touchdown, Lazard. And instead, you know, Jones gets blown up, Phillips gets the pressure and the rest was history. So uh, a phenomenal pass protector more often than not, just a rare miss on Jones. And that was his big negative on the day. There was also a couple plays, specifically one um, where Tavai in the open field, Tavai is not a, a great linebacker, specifically in the open field, where I would have expected Jones to be able to at least make a miss or maybe get some extra yardage. And Tavai just was able to get him down. Just a couple plays like that, where I, I thought Dylan I thought Dylan had less opportunity for some of the big runs. Jones just seemed to kind of get the ones where it was blocked up a little bit better and Dylan did not. It's not always the case, but in this game, I felt like Jones had the better opportunities and Dylan had to make a little bit more out of not as much. And I thought Dylan did a good job of that and just not having negatives. But number three on my list was Aaron Jones plus 0.1 on the day. The big pass pro mistake was the, the main negative. Uh, overall, I, I thought he had a nice day outside of that and he certainly ran the ball very well. A lot of his yardage was blocked yardage, meaning that he had some really good lanes and alleys to run through. Uh, but there were a couple of plays where he bounced outside that he did a really nice job as well. So those were actually the only three players on offense that I had graded in the positive. And Jones was basically just slightly above a neutral. So Lazard, Dylan, and Jones, and that was it. My bottom three offensive players, number one was Romeo Dobbs. And listen, I really, 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 really like Romeo Dobbs. I've said it already. He's going to be, I think, a very good player, maybe even a star in this league. What we're seeing out of rookie Romeo Dobbs from a wide receiver standpoint, some of the things that he can do, we've seen before in some very talented veteran wide receivers in this Green Bay offense. You know the names from Greg Jennings, Devontae Adams, Jordy Nelson, we're seeing you know those type of plays from Dobbs already in a four-game career and obviously some of it from preseason as well. But there are some special traits that he has that he can put together and be a fantastic wide receiver in this offense. But there's going to be a bit of a learning curve. There's going to be some hiccups along the way. And we saw that. He did a phenomenal job catching that pass from Aaron Rodgers. And that was a negative ball from Rodgers. And I didn't grade it down as much because it was a poor ball from Rodgers. But he makes a ridiculous catch, positive in that regards, but then doesn't secure the football and ends up turning the ball over. It's a negative play and one that he's going to learn from and he's going to secure the ball. And that sometimes the best teacher is, you know, failure or mistakes. And he's going to learn from that. I totally believe that. And then obviously the touchdown play as well, that should have been a touchdown, you know, that he just isn't able to hang on to. That was a perfect ball from Rodgers. Couldn't have handed it to Dobbs any better. I know it's a little bit of a contested catch situation. You have to survive the ground, but potential game on the line type moment there. 
And that's a ball that he has to come down with, has to catch. And like I said, he will in the future. That's a learning moment for Romeo Dobbs. And I agree with Matt LaFleur, how he responded after that, after both of those mistakes, kept battling, kept playing, had a couple key catches on that final overtime drive. It was just a little, you know, run solutions as Matt LaFleur called them. But man, you know, he still came up big in those moments. And I, I, like I said, he's going to be a really good player, but when you have a fumble and a dropped potential game winning touchdown pass, it's going to come out in the negative. And it just is what is a couple of really big plays, the touchdown catch as well, still working, uh, working progress as a run blocker. That's something he has to work on as well, which gets him a few more negative grades, but overall like what I see, but there's just no way around being in the negative in you know, when you have the fumble and the drop touchdown. John Runyon Jr., my second lowest graded player, disappointed in, in JRJ so far this season, loved watching him play a season ago. Didn't think like he was in the, you know, Elton Jenkins, David Bakhtiari, Corey Lindsley type tier, but I thought he had a really nice season last year. And I really thought he not only would carry that over, but expand upon that to become maybe, you know, uh, um, maybe not this year, but going forward, maybe like a Pro Bowl caliber guard. I think that was out of the realm of possibility at all. By the way, do we continue to talk about Pro Bowl caliber players that there's no Pro Bowl anymore? That's, I guess, something weird that we're going to have to, at least I'm going to have to adjust to moving forward. Uh, but you get my point. And so far this season, it just hasn't been that. And to John Runyon Jr.'s defense, it hasn't been that way for the entirety of the offensive line. And I, I've talked about this with Mike Wall, but like, you wonder how much Adam Stenovich being more of an offensive coordinator, not an offensive line coach is affecting the O-line because they have not looked good at all so far, all the way across the board. I don't have any offensive lineman greater than the positive. Not Yash, not Bakhtiari, not Jenkins, not Myers, not Newman, not Hanson, not Runyon, not, none of them, which is extremely rare. And that's on the season. And I, I, it has to be better. And right now it's not. And, and John Runyon Jr. should not be having a, a negative grade four games through the season. He should be one of the, the real true staples. So a disappointing start for him. And then Bakhtiari, actually my third lowest graded player. I thought last week didn't show much rust and, and maybe like only playing the 30 snaps helped him out a little bit more. Listen, this is a huge positive that he is not only back playing, but that he is, you know, played all but three snaps, I think in this game, just one series that Yash filled in for him. I'm okay with a little bit of rust at this point. He's going to be just fine. I love that, you know, I, I love how he plays the game. And he, like, this is the first week. Last week, I didn't think there was much rust. There was a little bit, of course, but like, I thought he played well. This week, you could see, and listen, New England's got some really good edge rushers. Judon and Wise are, are really good. And I'll tell you what, Uche, uh, the, the Michigan guy, um, he, he looked good in this game. He gave both tackles some trouble and he lined up over uh, over guard and center at times. Like he, he had a nice game, uh, but Bakhtiari struggled with some of those guys. He'll bounce back. He's going to be just fine, but he was negative 0.45 this week uh, as one of my lowest graded offensive players. Some other notes, Aaron Rodgers ended up at exactly even and it was basically two halves, a brutal, brutal, brutal first half really fantastic second half that I think kind of flew under the radar. The awesome ball to Randall Cobb along the sidelines on a key third down, the third down completion to Lazard along the sidelines. You've got what should have been a massive, beautiful game-winning touchdown to Romeo Dobbs in the end zone. There were some legit big-time throws in that second half, which made up for a abysmal first half and came out as a net even. And then Elton Jenkins, it's really funny because... The last two weeks, he was my lowest graded offensive player and like nobody wanted to hear it. 
And then they see a couple sacks given up this week, a couple pressures. It doesn't look great. And everyone's like, all right, they got to change everything, move him to guard. I actually thought he was much better this week and primarily in run blocking. I thought he was really, really good as a run blocker this week. Pass protection, yeah, you saw it. You saw some of the pressures he gave up. He is still learning how to pass pro at right tackle. It is a work in progress and something he has to continue to improve upon. Whether they move him inside remains to be seen. I, I, I would probably lean like, I don't know. I, I could go either way. A part of me wants to be like, all right, let's give him a couple more weeks, two, three more weeks and see, can he, can he settle in? Because he barely played this position prior to these first few weeks and he's coming off a torn ACL. Like, let's give him a hot second to see if he can settle down. If he doesn't, move Yash out there and move him inside and he's probably going to be fine. But I saw signs this week, especially as a run blocker, a couple of really nice pass pro plays. I thought this was a much better week than the last two weeks. So it's just funny to me that like everyone's panicked this week and I'm actually kind of like, eh, I thought he actually played better. And whereas the last two weeks, I'm like, oh, this did not look good. And just nobody wanted to hear it, of course. But that's where we're at defensively. Top three defensive players. Number one, you don't even need to know. Rashawn Gary, plus 1.85. Massive grade this week. Sack, sack, fumble, fumble recovery. You know, setting the edge well. He, he struggled a little bit as a, a run defender. They almost played him as like an interior down lineman at times to kind of match up against New England's, uh, you know, six offensive linemen. It didn't go great uh, a little bit in that regard. But overall, this was a beautiful, magnificent game from Rashawn Gary. Really enjoyed watching him play and a, a massive grade to go along with that, which is going to be a shock to absolutely nobody. Jerron Reed, plus 0.75, my second graded defender. I thought this was his best game as a Packer. He had two plays late in this game where he split double teams and made stops in the running game. Those were big time plays, especially late. You want to know why they got, you know, two of the, or, you know, some of those three and outs late in the game. Jerron Reed was a huge part of it. Man, if he can play anywhere close to that moving forward, that was, that was a really nice day from Reed and hopefully something he can build upon because I thought he's been okay. You know, the first three weeks, uh, but this game, it was a, it was a different level, especially late in the game when they needed him most. And then Rudy Ford, Rudy freaking Ford, number three on my list. Plus 0.55 grade. I loved how downhill he played in this game. Couple miscommunications in the secondary that he seemed to be a part of. And that would be something that you would kind of expect. He's going to have to learn the communication and, and make sure that he's ready to go if called upon again. But he also made the diving pass breakup in the last defensive play of the game that got the ball back for the offense. That was huge. And just his ability to come up and make plays in the running game. Like he's an interesting player. I, I'm not saying like he's he's not ahead of Savage or Amos clearly, but like I was I was impressed just with the vigor and intensity that he played the game with. I would like everyone to play with that intensity and and how he was flying to the football. He's a, he's a fun player. You can tell like there's going to be times where he just overruns stuff or like maybe plays a little bit too fast or whatever the case may be. But man, this defense could use a player like Rudy Ford just flying around and making some plays. He was all over the place. Couple big, you know, big pass breakup at the end. Couple big run stops, and just fearless as a safety. So, liked what I saw out of Rudy Ford in this game. Bottom three on defense, Enigbari really struggled on the edge, and this was a undersized edge rusher right now going up against the likes of Trent Brown and Isaiah Wynn, specifically Trent Brown. He saw a lot of Trent Brown, and Trent Brown just kind of ate him alive. 
And that's going to happen sometimes. He's going to have to put on functional strength. That's going to be an off-season thing. I, I like him a little bit more as a situational pass rusher. They just don't have that third edge guy that they can count on right now. It's not Garvin. It's not, you know, I think Inigbari can be used in a lot of situations, but going one-on-one with Trent Brown in a in a trench battle is not ideal. And, and I, Inigbari felt that after, the, like, I guarantee you he felt you know, the the impact of having to go against those bigger guys throughout the course of the game. It was a tough game for him. He'll bounce back. He's going to be just fine, but that was a tough game. Devondre, not off to the start that I think anyone would like. I think everyone was hoping this is going to be another all-pro season. Has not started that way. Some missed tackles again, which has been uncharacteristic. Not getting off blocks as easily and just not, you know, reacting the same way as we saw a season ago. I really do believe Devondre is going to be fine, but through four games hasn't been really the same as he was a season ago. Not a cause for concern yet, but worth monitoring to say the least. And then TJ Slayton, I mentioned the depth in this game, struggled. TJ Slayton, a big part of that. He's got to hold up better at the point of attack. This is a player that struggles. He and Wyatt struggle with technique and leverage. Guess what? The Patriots win with technique and leverage over and over and over and over again. And they out-leveraged and out-techniqued Wyatt when he was in there and, and Slayton when he was in there. And not to be totally unexpected, but those guys just have to work on that because yeah, they're both physical freaks and athletic freaks. Doesn't do much if the other guy can control you at the point of attack. New England did that and Slayton specifically struggled. Kenny Clark, negative 0.45 in this game. Uncharacteristic game from him after three phenomenal games the first three weeks. He'll bounce back, but I really thought he versus David Andrews was going to be a Kenny Clark massacre. Tip your cap to Kenny or to, uh, to David Andrews. He he hung in there and gave Kenny Clark all he could handle. Clark would have graded um, much better had it not been for the the personal foul penalty that also set up uh, New England with a, a much shorter field and an opportunity to go down and score an uncharacteristic play from him as well. Some other notes: Eric Stokes has got to do a better job of getting his his, his nose dirty and getting involved in the run game more because he wants to shy away and doesn't want to dive into that pile and doesn't want to get his hands too dirty. That's got to that's got to change. This has got to be an all eleven effort. You got to do your one eleven, and sometimes that means getting a little bit dirty. And the crazy thing is, is, on the outside, he made some really big tackles in this game. So it's like he can't do it. It's just he's got to have the all in mentality on every play and get get his hands a little bit dirtier. And I would like to see that from Stokes. And the communication has to get better. More communication breakdowns on the back end. Part of that I'm sure is with Jair and, and Amos out, but that's not an excuse. Everyone's got to know the communications. Everyone's got to know the calls. There were some mix-ups in this game and it cost them on the touchdown. It cost them on a couple other plays. So that is a very big work in progress. I mentioned it pregame show. New England loves their crossers and they're going to attack all of your principles and your rules and make sure that you're communicating them. Green Bay didn't. New England Almost beat him because of it. Got a couple big plays off of it. And you'll be happy to know, as much as I've uh, bashed Jonathan Garvin, he had a slight plus 0.05 grade for me this week. So not a Jonathan Garvin hater. Would love for him to break out. Had a slight positive. PFF graded him in the negative. I had a slight positive on him this week. So had a really nice pass rush. Had a really rough uh, play setting the edge on one play, but a really nice pass rush. The very next play had another good play later in the game as well. So hopefully the, the turning of the corner for Jonathan Garvin. That's going to do it for me today. Thank you so much for joining me. I always appreciate it. I'm going to be right back here tomorrow on YouTube. And then um, I'm also going to be on Packaday Live Tuesday, 7 p.m., 
hosting, of course, and special guests, Matt Schneidman from The Athletic, Nicole Menner from WLUK Fox 11. Sports team here in Green Bay should be a absolutely epic show. So 7 p.m. Central on YouTube. Make sure to check that out and subscribe if you have not already. Appreciate you. Thank you so much for joining me. I'll be right back here tomorrow on the YouTube channel. But until next time, and as always, go Pack Go. Chapman, welcome to the Planet Premier League podcast. Each week, Cesc Fabregas, Nader Manua and myself talk all things Premier League. As a player, you don't have time to talk. No. You don't have time to make a plan. You just need to deal with wave after wave after wave. We watched Coach Carter and he said, oh, afterwards, the game's just about doing this for your teammates. And I remember looking around halfway through the film and half the squad was asleep. <laughs> Planet Premier League. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.